It is a great privilege and a joy to be with you again this year for our Bible League preaching rally. Thank you very much, all of you, for coming to us and supporting this meeting. It means so much to us to have like-minded friends standing with us in the cause of God and truth that we represent at the Bible League. If I may just, to begin with, uh, make known a couple of books that are not connected with the Bible League as such, and yet not unconnected. They are volumes by Pastor James Smith, uh, one of Spurgeon's predecessors at the Tabernacle in London when it was the New, New Park Street pulpit. And many of you will be familiar with the Daily Remembrancer, which uh, has been a blessing to many since we were able under God to republish it. If you haven't got a copy and you'd like one or you'd like an extra one tonight, we have some uh, with us and they're £10 each. One that you may not know about is Bread from Heaven by the same author. And this is one that we've been recently able to republish. Uh, it's not a book of daily readings, but a book of chapters on various subjects, doctrinal, experiential, practical. Uh, I'll just uh, give you some examples from the contents page concerning the matters covered. The way to please God, the power of Christ, be still. What is conversion? Glorifying God. A lesson for the day. That's a particularly good one. Meekness. Eternal redemption. How can I maintain peace of mind? Keep close to Christ. Remember. Delight in the law of God. Consolation for the weak. And so on. Uh, we would like to commend this book to you. We have a quantity with us this evening. And they are £6 each. And if you'd like to have a copy from us, do just mention it at the Bible League table at the back for both the Bread from Heaven and the Daily Remembrancer. And we'll be glad to sell you them. And uh, already this second volume, judging from what people are saying, is proving a great blessing to Christian people. And we're very thankful for the writings of James Smith and we can be absolutely certain that if he were alive today and lived anywhere near here he would be among you in fact he would be speaking and that would be much better but uh, we know that he'd be with us 100% as we love the things of God together now if I may uh, mention the Bible League uh, Pastor Pfeiffer has uh, mentioned it already but just to say that we are really encouraged in these days with the ministry of the Bible League in that the Lord is good to us. The uh, magazine, The Quarterly, not a popular magazine by any means. In fact, uh, in some quarters, very unpopular. But I had just... Um, uh, a little note here which um, dates from 1917 
because the Bible League has been going since 1892. But William Fuller Gooch, who was the secretary of the Bible League at that time, he looks back over 25 years of the, the League's existence and he wrote of it as suffering great difficulties and receiving little financial support during those early years. He acknowledged that this was not helped by the fact that, quote, of course it does not uphold a popular cause, unquote. That's 1917. We weren't popular back then even, when things were very, very much better really, generally speaking. But you see, it reminds us that by 1917, the reason why the Bible League was raised up was becoming even more potent because liberalism, since the latter part of the 19th century, by 1917, liberalism had become rampant in the churches. And what had not helped it was the publication of a certain Bible commentary in 1919. It certainly wasn't the republication of Matthew Henry's commentary or anything like that, but A.S. Peake's Bible commentary, a one-volume commentary on the Bible, a work described at the time by Dr. Graham Scroggie as sodden with infidelity. Peake was a Methodist layman, son of a primitive Methodist minister, and his name would never have been as well known but for this notorious commentary, drawing together contributions from over 60 liberal theologians, it worked from the premise that the Bible is no more than, quote, the greatest human achievement, unquote. Concerning the Saviour, the commentary states, quote, we cannot claim infallibility for him on questions of history, such as the authorship of the Old Testament books or the problems of science. He was one who knew little, if anything, of Greek philosophy, of Roman law, and nothing of the vast accumulation of knowledge which has been garnered and systematized since his day. Unquote. That is dreadful, dreadful blasphemy on our blessed Redeemer, the Son of God, the 1923 General Methodist Conference made Peake's commentary required reading for all its probationary ministers. Any, any surprise that Methodism as a denomination was thoroughly liberalized and began on that road or carried on on that road to apostasy. But there was concerted effort to get this new teaching, poison, into the minds of children. So the commentary was strongly promoted for the guidance and instruction of Sunday school teachers. Professor S.W. Green of Regents Park College, the main centre for the training of Baptist Union ministers, enthused, hundreds of our best Sunday school workers are eagerly drinking in the changed conceptions of the Bible literature, of the nature of its revelation, of the manner of its inspiration from Peake's commentary. So in the Baptist denomination, as well as Methodism, it gets worse and worse. And so, you see, even before it got as bad as that, 
1917 it was bad and uh, the league was struggling to uh, keep supporters and gather more supporters. And you might think, well, uh, we've come a long way since then. In some quarters things have got worse. Perhaps in other quarters things have got better. We, we don't uh, have our evangelical ministers depending on A.S. Peake's commentary these days. But dear friends, we have many of them belonging to affinity. And you will be aware of perhaps the latest issue of Foundations, the journal that Affinity publishes, and an article entitled The Age of the Earth, and how that it maintains that we needn't be dogmatic on the fact that the six days of creation in Genesis 1 are necessarily meant by the Bible author to mean six 24-hour days. Uh, that you can think that if you want, but if you don't believe that, it doesn't matter, because it didn't matter to the author of Genesis. So they maintain. And this is a very serious thing, dear friends, because we've got evangelicals now querying this. We know, don't we, that when, Moses, uh, when uh, God, uh, in Exodus 20, verse 8, gives the fourth commandment, he says, six days shalt thou labour and do all thy work, referring to the six days of creation when God did his work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Well, is the seventh day anything other than a 24-hour day? And so are those six days on which we work anything other than 24-hour days? And it's the same Hebrew word as in Genesis chapter 1. The evening and the morning were the first day, second day and so on. So the very words of the text demand that they are 24-hour days. And yet this is saying we needn't believe that. It can be ages, can even be millions of years of time. And so you can accommodate evolution. And this is being taught, sanctioned by affinity, by evangelical churches and writers, and defended by them. And like Dr. Andy McIntosh wrote to me in an email, this is theistic evolution. And that is a serious departure from biblical orthodoxy. So you see, these, come, these things come round again and again in different forms. And in this current issue of the Bible League Quarterly, I take up that uh, article in Foundations and I write uh, an article entitled An Uncertain Sound, Affinity and Genesis Chapter 1. And I've already had some comeback, not very pleasant comeback, from predictable quarters on it. But there are uh, some of these on the table at the back. The current issue, if you'd like a copy, please take one, completely free, as are all the back issues of the quarterly. But do read this article and be aware of what is happening because these are signs of the times, dear friends. And these are things that we need to contend for. The, uh, the literalness where it's clear that it's literal of the teaching of the Word of God. There are also um, other things in, uh, on the table, publications from the Bible League. 
Now, I can be generous this evening. There are two books on the table, Truth Unchanged, Unchanging, which I can offer you... I can offer them to you for five pounds, which is about half what we normally sell them for, but we have only got a few left, and uh, they're heavy, and so it'd be useful if I didn't have to take them back. Five pounds for truth unchanged, unchanging. Everything else on the table, except, of course, uh, bread from heaven and so on, everything else on the table, free, booklets and so on. Take them and use them. Can I recommend the Bible League website? www.bibleleaguetrust.org it's on the front of every issue of the quarterly it's worth looking there because you'll have articles from back issues and lots of other things and uh, we are thankful to say that we have had a lot of visitors to the website Uh, 79,000 I think uh, since it was launched a few years ago And it's an important presence on the internet, isn't it? And uh, we believe a a vital resource that the Lord is using. You never know who will visit us and who will be helped by our uh, witness and our stand. And of course, if you'd like to support us um, most tangibly, and I always say this, best of all, you're welcome to take magazines and read them and so on and buy the books but if you chose to become a subscriber for £8 a year you'd have your quarterly sent to you and you would identify with our witness in the best way and we would welcome you uh, last year we, we had uh, 40 new subscribers to uh, our magazine and um, we've got about 19 or so, I think, so far this year. It's not about numbers, but it does mean that the more who join us and stand with us, uh, the greater, we believe, the effect under God can be of our witness in these needy days. So if I could commend these things to you, and uh, thank you so much for your interest and your being here with us this evening. Now, could we turn, please, to Psalm 119? And I want us to read a different section from that which we sang earlier. If we could could, um, read from verse 137 to 144. Psalm 137. 19, 137 to 144. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, 
Yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. I once heard a preacher speak on the whole of Psalm 119 in one sermon. All 22 sections and 176 verses. Not verse by verse, but he gave a beautiful overview of the whole psalm. And he summarized this psalm in the way that I think I have never heard it better summarized. He said, it is the word of God in prayer, profession and practice. The word of God in prayer, profession and practice. And he's right. Because David is glorying in Holy Scripture. Talking to God about it here. Declaring his esteem of it. And seeking to obey it in his life. And it reminds us, dear friends, that a real Christian is a Bible-believing person comes to church with a Bible under his arm or maybe on his tablet now. He has texts on the wall in his home. At family worship, the Bible is read as prayer is then offered and he expects the Bible to be read in the services of worship and preached from from the pulpit. And it's a matter of centrality and supreme importance to us the word of God I remember one of our elderly members at Devizes she mentioned Devizes earlier a godly exercise strict Baptist lady and she said in all her growing up in her godly home it was the most natural thing to see her father sat in his armchair reading the Bible and she would ask him daddy what are you reading I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading about Elijah. And she grew up in that kind of thing and blessed is the home and blessed is the family where the word of God is read and loved and practiced. Now, this great concentration on the Bible and of course we do the same, don't we? The Bible League and the Bible League Quarterly This great concentration on the Bible has led people to criticize us in a certain way. And they say, you evangelicals, you reformed people, you virtually worship the Bible. You've got it all out of proportion. You're guilty of bibliolatry. Or they say, you reject the Pope of Rome, but you have a paper Pope. You have this Bible. Others say, you can't give such a supreme and important place to the Bible in the way you do. God is bigger than the Bible. That sounds plausible, doesn't it? But let's remember this, dear friends, that what we are doing is simply what the Bible itself insists we do. Because this is the Bible's witness to itself. You have here in this psalm 176 verses extolling the scriptures. 
And this is only one psalm in the Psalter, granted the longest one. But what the Bible claims for itself, you see, is what we are entitled to claim for it and uh, contend for it as well. And David here, we believe, is the author of Psalm 119. But he writes all this, the word of God in prayer, profession, practice, as an inspired prophet. Not as just an admirer of scripture. In Acts chapter 1 verse 16, in another psalm, Peter says, the word of God, sorry, the spirit of God spake by the mouth of David, an inspired man, in what he said and what he wrote. So this is the Bible's own witness to itself, this great and this high view. And all the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament testifying to the divinity and the supreme importance of the holy word of God. It says in Psalm 138 in verse 2 that God has exalted his word above all his name. It's not a staggering statement. He's exalted his word above all his name. What does that mean? Well, the name of God, Jehovah, meaning to be, reveals God, doesn't it? That he's everlasting and unchangeable and the God of the covenant. And so there is revelation in God's name. Jehovah tells us about himself. But how do we know that name and its meaning? From the scriptures. So in that sense, the Bible uh, God has exalted it above his name because for the purposes of revelation it's so supremely important. And if you didn't have that verse in the Bible that the Bible is above God's name you wouldn't dare say it, would you? For fear of misunderstanding. But God says it himself. Without the Bible you would not know God's name, its meaning or the revelation of himself. So the Bible is supremely important. You can't know God without it. Can't know Christ without it, or salvation, or the way to heaven, or the Christian life, or the promises, or anything without the Bible. How can you speak too highly of it and extol it too high? And one other thing here there is the closest association between God and His Word, clearly in the Bible. Let me just give you one example. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17. You have this, Paul quoting from the book of Exodus, Romans 9 and verse 17, concerning Pharaoh. Notice he writes, the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. The scripture saith, but when you turn to the source of the quotation, in Exodus 9.16, it's God who says these words. So you see, God speaking, and Paul says it's Scripture speaking. So God and Scripture so closely identify. And so God and Scripture in that sense are one. And it shows, doesn't it, that your attitude to God is your attitude to Scripture. Put the other way around, your attitude to Scripture will be your attitude to God. 
And that is so important, isn't it? People speak lightly of the Bible. We must move away from it. and It doesn't have to be that regulative. And You're saying that, and what you're saying is we must move away from God. And he does not have the right to regulate things and tell us what to believe and what to do. God and Scripture are so closely identified. And that's why extolling Scripture is really uh, equivalent to extolling the God of this Word who has inspired and given it to us. So we're talking, dear friends, about our attitude to the Bible. And that being the same as our attitude to God. Didn't Jesus say in John 8 verse 31, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples. Indeed. The hallmark of discipleship is continuing in God's word. Believing it, following it, practicing it, obeying it. And so, if anyone says, well, I I believe I'm a Christian, but I never read the Bible. That's impossible, isn't it? You can't profess love to Christ without also loving his word, which is so full of him from beginning to end. We had a, an open-air witness last month in Hollywell High Street. We have one one a month. And we try and engage people in conversation with our gospel tracts. And then I preach at the close. And one of our members was speaking to a very nice lady and they were talking for quite a while and I sort of came near and, and he, did, he said, oh, this is our minister. Perhaps you'd like to speak to him. And so I went up to the lady and uh, it was explained that she was a, a Methodist local preacher. And uh, this church member of ours was seeking to explain that um, this is unscriptural. I suffer not a woman to teach, neither to, ex- neither to uh, usurp authority over a man and so on. So we were talking about this and what God's word taught. And these were her words. She said, well, we, we've got to move away from that. And I said, it may well be that you're not even a Christian. Because God's word is our authority for all that we do. And I quoted John 8, verse 31. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And I said, you're not continuing in his word. You're not obeying it. You're doing that which is forbidden by it. I spoke very nicely and politely. And, and she received it well. And afterwards she, she said, well, I'll have to go and think about that. But you see, people don't think about it, do they? And if you really want to please God and serve him, you do it no further than you do it according to his word, what he has said. Well, I want us to look particularly at verse 140 in this Psalm 119. And David says there, Thy word is very pure, Therefore thy servant loveth it. David's estimation of God's word, which also should be ours. Let's look first of all at what he says about it. Thy word is very pure. Very pure. It's divine quality. Like the Lord, who is 
holiness, purity, completeness, cleanness, perfection. This attribute of God is also what belongs to the word he has spoken. Very pure. And it means, dear friends, there's no admixture or taint in the Bible. There's no mistake in it. There's nothing lacking that needs supplementing by human scholarship. We know that, don't we? Not just a part of it, but every part of it, very pure. Psalm 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. You can read any part of it, and it leaves a pure taste in your mouth. You can even read parts of it that are a bit earthy or refer to intimate things. But in such a chaste and holy way does it do it that you're not at all affected by it. It doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth like human literature or the media and what they put out. Every word of God is pure. And when we come to it, dear friends, it affects us, doesn't it? It affects us. It makes us like itself. And that's the remarkable thing about it. Why is it that you and I are converted? What has been the Lord's purpose in saving us? Well, Romans 8 verse 29. Predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Purity, divine purity, altogether loveliness incarnate. And our great destiny is to be conformed and made like the Lord Jesus in our lives. That's the supreme reason why we've been saved. That he might be the firstborn, occupy the chief place in the family and have many brethren, you and me, wearing the family likeness, growing like him. I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. The first and primary purpose of our salvation is not to be servants. We're not saved to serve. We're saved to be made holy. And then our service will be fruitful and will be blessed. But the first and foremost reason is to be made like the Lord Jesus. And how does God the Holy Spirit sanctify us and make us like the Lord Jesus? He takes the word, doesn't he? And he applies the word to us and works it into our lives so that it has a purifying effect. It's even spoken of as being like water. Ephesians 5 and verse 26. Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might wash it, or sorry, that he might sanctify it by the washing of water by the word. And it does have a cleansing effect, doesn't it? It shows us where there are dirty marks, where there are blemishes, where there are wrong things. And it shows us what we should be like. And it, and it shows us that there is grace and help from God to repent, to be forgiven, to be changed, to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. The Lord Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 17 to his Father concerning his disciples indeed, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. And our Lord was meaning the Old Testament, particularly there, wasn't he? But it applies to the New Testament as well, because it's all of a piece. But you think about this. 
It's an indirect testimony to the truth of the Bible again, isn't it? If we are made holy by this book, there can't be any lies in it, can there? There can't be anything that's wrong or false in this book. It won't produce holy people, pure people, if there, if there is. It's an indirect testimony to the divinity and the purity and the holiness of God's word. And my dear friends, we are blessed when we sit under it on the Lord's day. And it breaks over us, it washes over us. And it has an effect if the Holy Spirit blesses it to us. And we are put out of love with sin and in love with pursuing holiness. And we long to be more like the Lord Jesus. And we're changed, maybe even imperceptibly. You might say as a Christian, as we all sometimes say, I don't know if I'm making much progress. The same sins, the same, the same things I go down with, same troubles and difficulties, the same words, attitudes, spirit. But dear friends, the work is the Lord's, isn't it? He is doing the sanctifying and the scriptures are the instrument. And the Holy Spirit is the agent. And he's having his way because if he's, if he's predestined, predestined us to be like his son, he'll make us like his son. And his word will have its effect. More than we know. More than we know. I am sure of that. Be encouraged. He said to his disciples in John 15 verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Well, they were being affected in that way. Thy word is very pure. And it has a purifying effect upon us. Oh, how it changes us. Don't you reckon that, say, ten years ago, if you've been a Christian that long, were there not things in your life ten years ago that you didn't see as sin? But now ten years later you do see as sin and disobedience and by God's grace you don't do those anymore. And that's, you see, being cleansed from wrong, sinful things and growing in grace. And one evidence that this is really happening is that the smaller things that we didn't see as sins in the past, we now are much more sensitive about. And we do see as sins because God's word has sharpened our understanding and sensitivity to them. And we find we confess them now as sin and pray for the Lord to deliver them from us. And you see, our lives are being cleaned and purified and made holy like God is holy and pure like the Lord Jesus is pure. And if we have a soft heart, a teachable spirit, a submissive will, we shall find that this is going on. But dear friends, it is a worrying thing, isn't it? It is a worrying thing when believers, some believers can somehow profess orthodoxy in doctrine and yet somehow they don't tremble at the word so much and are not so conscientious about keeping God's word and honor, honoring him and can happily do things that are quite clearly unscriptural and that if you uh, had an opportunity to politely point out that sort of thing they would justify themselves in doing it or sidestep the application 
and the challenge. Rather than be humbled and brought up sharp and be made to say, oh, I didn't realise that God's word said that. I, I must, by God's grace, put that right. Isn't it a beautiful thing when you do encounter this in Christians? When they have seen a verse in a new light and they say to you, I, I, I feel convicted over that. I, I really had to go home and confess my sin to the Lord and, uh, and put this matter right. And I'm so thankful the Lord has dealt with me over this because now I'm, I'm so blessed and I'm thankful that uh, God's word has been faithful and dealt with me faithfully. That's a beautiful thing. That's a gracious thing. But how often do you encounter it in Christians these days? When you bring the word to bear upon how God should be worshipped in church, about what you should do or not day on the what you should do or not do on the Sabbath day, for instance, and where you are allowed to go and not allowed to go in terms of places in the world, and and. and priorities and things that you have in your life how much do you find being measured by God's word all the time and that which I see not teach thou me mm. oh Lord sanctify me put me right keep me right how much of this do you see but this is this is real religion isn't it heart religion and this is what's commended all the way through in Psalm 119 and all the way in the Bible and we long for this don't we and we certainly know that if God were to visit us again in great blessing, you would see much more of this. Conviction of sin, repentance, coming back to the Lord, putting things right, lives being changed. How we long for this, don't we? But let us make sure that we are faithful ourselves and have tender consciences over this matter. I'm quite sure that the Bible League Quarterly is not popular because it's, it seeks to promote these things. And, and so many Christians don't like to read about these strict and narrow things that challenge them and uh, disturb their convictions and their lifestyle. Well, we don't set out deliberately to be unpopular, but when has God's word really been popular ever, really? Unless taught of God and the Lord's people graciously dealt with. But, dear friends, we would say of this, wouldn't we? Thy word is very pure and oh, we want it to purify us as well. It's not just our esteem of it. It's, it's application to us and it's changing us every day of our lives. And then one further thing in this, what is said about it. You can understand the word, thy word is very pure. Not only in terms of purity in itself, but in terms of how it appears in the margin. If you have a margin Bible against the word pure, at verse 140, it says tried. In other words, it means it's been purified. It's been uh, found to be pure. It's gone through a process of trial and found to be pure. And we can think of it like that. Because you see, God's word has stood the test, hasn't it? And it's proved itself to be what it claims to be. You think of this, for instance. How about fulfilled prophecy? The trial of history. And how 
The Bible has been put to the test with that. Now you think of just one subject, the crucifixion of our blessed Redeemer. And you know in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Calvary, before the cross, and our blessed Redeemer crucified, how does Psalm 22 open? It opens with those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David there crying out in his anguish. But then our Lord on the cross made these words one of his seven sayings, didn't he? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken us, forsaken me? Matthew 26, uh, no, Matthew 27 verse 46. And you say, ah, well, that's easily done. Because all the Lord Jesus needed was to know that Psalm 22 opened with those words and he could take them up on his lips and fulfill them easily himself, couldn't he? If I wanted to be cynical. Ah, but what about this? What about this? Further down in Psalm 22. How about this in verse 16? They pierced my hands and my feet A thousand years before. And that was something that others did to our Lord. Nailing him to the cross of Calvary. It was forecast, prophesied that it would happen here. And all those centuries later, it did happen. Literally. Well, how how did that happen? What was said at that point was fulfilled all that time later. It's the trial of history that shows that this was divinely inspired and prophesied and had its fulfilment in later history. Look at one further from this. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 22. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's exactly what they did to our Lord's seamless coat, wasn't it? They didn't want to tear it in half, those Roman soldiers, and share it because it was seamless and of good quality, they said, let's cast lots and see who of us will have it. Well, that was again something others did. How could our Lord engineer that artificially? And so you see the trial of history, fulfilled prophecy. And you could add to that Isaiah 53, seven centuries earlier, uh, not quite so far back in time. And the meticulous details of Isaiah 53, it's just like reading the New Testament almost. And it's fulfillment in the Gospels, seven centuries later. Thy word is very pure. It's gone through this trial of history and it's proven to be true. And you could do that with fulfilled prophecy again and again and again, couldn't you? And you'll find that what God has promised with his mouth, he has performed with his hand in providence and in history and his word is very pure think of it in terms of persecution the Bible has been through the fiery trial of every attack to try to disprove and destroy it hasn't it from the Roman emperors in the early church trying to stamp out that early church to Roman Catholicism burning copies of it and burning Christians for reading it. From rabid atheists to liberal 
academics, from blasphemous scrawling over its pages to celebrities on stage tearing out its pages because it condemns homosexuality. Every conceivable blasphemous attack and denunciation, attempt to destroy it and discredit it, disprove it, get rid of it. And the trial of persecution is still here. And thy word is very pure, very true, and completely intact. It's failed. Do you know this poem about the uh, about um, the Bible being like an anvil wearing out many hammers? goes like this. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. When looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter these hammers so? Just one, said he. Then with a twinkling eye, the anvil wears the, the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. The anvil that has worn out all the hammers of history and will do to the end of time. You might wonder who wrote that poem. Well, it's attributed to a man called John Clifford. Sometimes it's attributed to Anonymous. And I've tried to find out who this John Clifford is. But if you know the history of the downgrade in Spurgeon's day, you will know that Dr. John Clifford was prominent in the Baptist Union at the time when Spurgeon was waging the warfare uh, for the truth against liberalism and how that he did not side with Spurgeon in the fight. In fact, he uh, believed in the new theology and uh, the liberalism, the modern thought that was coming in. And he was a Baptist Union man and he remains so. Now, if this is the John Clifford who wrote this poem, isn't it terribly ironic that he celebrates the fact that the Bible is an anvil that's worn out all the hammers and yet he himself has hammered on it. Not that he could destroy it, but he certainly undermined people's confidence in the Bible in not standing with doughty defenders of it like Spurgeon and others. See, you can... You can poetically extol the Bible. And you can say wonderful words about it. But when it comes to the crunch, are you prepared to stand up and be counted among those who are simple enough in their faith to believe thy word is very pure or not? And so you see thy word is very pure. The fulfilled prophecy, the process of trial, in history and the persecution that has come upon it making no difference but making it more glorious in the eyes of God's people and lastly gracious experience we find dear friends that what we read in this blessed book is verified to us in our Christian lives we find 
Exactly so. Blessed is the word, sorry, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Recently, it was my privilege to conduct the funeral of one of our church members. She had been converted as a little girl in a Christian home. And her husband lent to me a photocopy of the flyleaf of her Bible. It was given to her when she was 11 years old. And you know how little, little girls and boys, they tend to write things in the, on the flyleaf of their Bible. I became a Christian on such and such a date. And she says, uh, 1946 it was, I think. Uh, she was 85, I think, when she died. So she was a little girl then. And she said um, something like, I, I surrendered my life to my Savior. Mm. Mr. So-and-so was the speaker. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to her through him. And then she wrote, and I have never regretted it. Mm. In her childlike way. And she lived to be 85 and... That was ever true of her and all of us who knew her knew it was sincere. And you see, Psalm 48 verse 8 says, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Whatever we hear in this blessed book preached to us, read to us in God's house, so we see and find in our experience. It rings true. It is true. We have found it to be true. Every promise commended to us. We have stood upon it and God has been faithful to us. Every command. We have been given grace to follow it and we're blessed in the doing of it. Everything is warned us about. And by grace we've heeded the warning and we've been kept from so much through heeding that warning. Every comfort every opening of God's heart to us in the scriptures that has warmed our hearts and led us to trust him and to follow him with all our hearts. We found that he's been the beloved of our souls and has satisfied us and met all our needs. And so it's tried, it's purified, it's passed the test of our experience and has never, ever failed us. We have a, a dear friend who is very seriously ill at the present time and she sent us an email letting us know of how she was and of course we're praying for her and I quote part of her email now here is a lady who's been a Christian for a number of years Christian family and she, she writes this I am enjoying such a sense of the Lord's upholding that I could write an essay but won't. Lessons I should have learnt years ago being taught now. Things I have believed in theory becoming reality. How weak and feeble my faith really is and it is only God's grace, patience and love that has ever kept me. Well you see that's not written just for effect, that's sincere. And so she's saying that the word of God is very pure. It, it's ringing true. It's proving itself true in her experience when she needs it most now. Having a very serious form of cancer and undergoing treatment. And it's true it is, isn't it? That when the Lord leads us in unexpected ways, when our needs are very great, 
God's word is never more precious and never more blessed to us. And by it we believe that we know God in the experience. Matthew Henry, when he was dying, he said, You take notice of the sayings of dying men. Well, this is mine. A life spent in the service of God and in communion with him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this present world. And who knew, who knew the Bible as well as Matthew Henry? Oh, but it rang true. It was true for him in his experience. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. So what is expressed there? What is said about it? Thy word is very pure. Let me finish quickly with this other. What is felt about it? Therefore thy servant loveth it. You see, more than even believing it, studying it, learning it, teaching it, loving it for what it is. The word in all its purity and its purifiedness. Isn't it a blessed thing to love the word of God? We who knew what it was to hate it at one time, and the longer we lived in our unregeneracy, perhaps the more hardened we, we grew against it, didn't we? Uh, can we remember times when we mocked the Bible and uh, made fun of Christians? At the very least, neglected the Bible and didn't bother reading it. And then at conversion, all that changed. And the Bible became a book to us, a new book, because now we knew the author and oh, how we prize the Bible. We love it because we find Jesus there. Because we get to know God there. We love the Bible even when it rebukes us. Even when it tells us off. Tells us the worst about it, ourselves. We still love it because we know it's true. And because it's for our good. We love it for every reason. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10. They received the love of the truth. You receive it, you see, when you're born again with this word. And then it becomes not only the breeder, but the feeder of grace, as one of the Puritans puts it. We love it for its purity and provenness. And quite honestly, the, lo the longer we are Christians, the more we love God's word. We really do love it. And we feel so ashamed that we don't read it more. So ashamed that we don't prize the preaching of it more. But that is our weakness, our sin. But oh, we love. We love God's word. And we love the authorized version because it gives us uh, as, as exactly the translation into English as is possible from the original. And uh, faithfully, reliably, and in such English as sets it forth memorably to us. And we love the word of God. I do honestly think that people who go for modern Bible translations and paraphrases, they move away. They move away from God's word. They don't, they're not in the word more. They're in the word less. And certain it is that if they go to a church where different 
English translations are used, some of them end up leaving their Bible at home because they don't know quite which version will be preached from in the pulpit any given Lord's Day. And so therefore there's less of it. And in many churches it's on a screen anyway, isn't it? So you don't even need a copy of the Bible in book form or electronic form. And so we're moving further and further away from the Bible and discussion about matters and, uh, and uh, arriving at truth concerning matters. The Bible is not quoted in the same way. It's not memorized by people in the same way. If you don't love the authorised version, I'm not saying you can't be a real Christian without the authorised version, but I do say this, that when I listen to preachers using a modern Bible translation, less of the actual Bible is quoted because somehow they can't remember it. Or if they're older men, they quote the Bible and it comes out as the authorised version. They can't get rid of it out of their system and they should have stayed with it in the first place. But you see, this is the terrible move that's happening. Keep, dear friends, to the authorised version and it'll keep on your soul and you'll love it. For God has given to us this Reformation translation that is so pure and so precious. Well, what is said about it, thy word is very pure. What is felt about it, therefore thy servant loveth it. Let us love it because we love God. And let us love God because we love his word. May the Lord bless us and help us in these things. Amen.